Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We are in the book of Genesis. We're starting our series today, and we're going through the major characters of Genesis. And not just in here, uh, but in our preschool, our children, our students, uh, many of our, most of our small groups will all be going through the same material that will give you the opportunity to discuss uh, with your children, with your teens, and with your friends and your family uh, the same manner as we talk about today, Genesis, as we look at the story of Adam and Eve and we see how sin spoils everything. This is exactly what our children and students are doing at the same time. So as we go through this ser- series, I encourage you to read through the book of Genesis. Today we talk about the subject of how sin spoils everything, and also there's something else for us to understand. There's a term called the sunum bonum. Sunum bonum. Raise your hand if you know what that means. It's a Latin phrase. Um, I'm expecting our attorneys and medical people to raise their hand, and I'm seeing school teachers instead. But nevertheless, (laughs) um, Sunum bonum, sunum, you're, you're familiar with that. Some of you are. I personally never had that designation. Highest bonum, good. Highest good. What is the highest good in your life? Now, Cicero, the ancient Roman philosopher, talked about this, as did Aristotle, and then Augustine, who really put this in perspective in a biblical manner. Uh, and Immanuel Kant, many philosophers have talked about what is the highest good? What is the greatest good? What is the ultimate purpose for your life? And we have to discern that from Scripture, because if not, every man discerns that differently. Matter of fact, if you asked our culture today, the United States of America, North America, what is the sunum bonum? 
for life. You know what most people would say? We think this is the highest value you can have. Everyone should be able to do or get what they want. Everyone ought to be able to do what they want. And if that's your sunum bonum, then you start to see the disintegration of the culture. By the way, there's a secular writer called Carl Menninger. Many of you are familiar with him, uh, who wrote a book, um, and it wasn't from a Christian perspective, but he said, whatever happened to sin? And basically just kind of calls out, hey, we don't want anything. We don't like that word. And as Pascal said, nothing is more offensive to mankind than to hear the concept of original sin, that we were all born sinful. And because our culture doesn't want to see that, we come up with different ways of understanding what sin is. But in that context, we still have to ask the question, what is the sunum bonum? of our life what is the sunum bonum of your life what is the highest good what is the ultimate importance in your life well i want to give you the outline right now i know some of you think well i can go after you get that right uh let me give you our entire outline and then we're going to just kind of walk through this in a scripture through scripture so here's the outline for today First of all, what is our ultimate importance? And I believe uh, we'll look at Genesis 1.26, and it'll answer that question. Who are we? What are we to do? And how do we respond? Who are we? What are we to do? And how do we respond? Number two, the ultimate sin. The Scripture tells us in Genesis 3 what the ultimate sin is, and it's our sunum bonum being transferred from God to us. The ultimate truth is God is the sunum bonum, the ultimate lie is God is not the sunum bonum. He is not to be trusted. He is not the ultimate good. Number three, the birth of sin, the result of the transfer. And we'll see that cynicism, lies, and questions bring about that process. So let's start right here with the sunum bonum. Let's start right here with the ultimate good. And let's start right here with what God teaches us through Scripture is our ultimate importance in life. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says, and God said, let, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. That's called the Imago Dei, the image of God. Mankind was created in the image of God. We are a representative. We are a reflection. We are to be a reflection of of the God of the universe. That's why we were created last, and we were created in his image from dust. The word Adam means earth. Matter of fact, literally red earth. From the earth, God developed and formed man, and God gave him a purpose. He was to be an image bearer of God. And in this next part of 26, a, or 20, chapter 1, verse 26, it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over livestock, over all of the earth. Mankind was given the dominion over everything. That word dominion has three parts to it. First of it, first of all, the dominion, we are to rule. Three R's here, to rule. We are to manage is the better word to understand it. We are to be managers and stewards of the creation that God has put before us. That's both with the earth and with the families and the relationships that we've been given. We are to be responsible managers 
Okay, number one. Number two, um, the second R is this. We are to not only rule, we are to be representatives of God. Representatives of God. We are to represent God to the kingdom. We are represent God to others. We are ambassadors for God. We are his representatives. Okay, so we see we are his managers. We're his representatives. And number three, we are to respect, to respect God, to respect his creation, to respect the responsibility that we have been given. That's what it means to have dominion. So we see who we are. We are image bearers of the holy God. We were created in his image. We are to reflect and we are to be responsible. We are to rule and manage. We are to respect and we are to be his representatives that's of what is ultimate importance. That is the sunum bonum, to have that relationship and that respect and worship and honor for God Almighty. But then something happened. And if you have your Bibles, turn with, with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll see what transpired. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning with the first verse, the Bible tells us this. Now, the serpent, and by the way, we're not going to get into this, but we'll just say for our purposes today, serpent is the embodiment of evil, the representative of evil of Satan. And so it's, he's not, most scholars say he's not Satan himself, but he's being used. He's a representative and was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any?" any of the tree in the garden. You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Now notice what happens right here. Notice what is transpiring right here. Satan is saying, or the serpent is saying, did God really tell you that? Did God really say that? I mean, you're kidding me. He said that? Ever get that response? If you start to talk about your faith or your values, Has anyone ever said, do you really believe that? Really? That's how it usually starts. That's how people usually begin to doubt their faith, so to speak. It's a lot of times we want to think it's a big intellectual argument. Can I tell you from my experience, it's almost really never an intellectual argument. It's almost always an emotional argument. In other words, well, someone died or something bad happened and I just don't get it. It's emotional, and so it doesn't fit. And so you go, but how could he be a good God? How can God be in control? It's an attitude. Sin always starts with an attitude, and the very first sin starts with an attitude, with a jeer almost. Did God really say that? Almost sarcastically. Did God really tell you that for real? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, we don't, the Scripture doesn't tell us that they couldn't touch it, but we know this. We know that there are a lot of trees in the garden. They can eat from all the fruit. There is a tr- also a tree of life, which is not mentioned again till the very end of the Bible in Revelation. And most scholars and theologians believe that this was the fruit, this was of the food that they would eat that sustained life. 
And it shows up again in Revelation when God creates a new heaven, a new earth, and he's given life eternally. And they were eating of that, but there was one tree that they were told, you cannot eat of this tree, this tree of knowledge, so to speak. And the picture here is like this. I am God. I am your sovereign creator. I have created you. You are to be responsible. You are to manage, and you are to take care of the creation here, and you are to give it respect and to give me respect and glory. And there's one tree here. I just want you to stay away from it. Trust me, I know what's best. But what do they do? Well, we're tempted, aren't we? We're always tempted to move the sunum bonum from God, my relationship with you, my recognition of who you are and the greatness of who you are. And there's a deceiver that comes in with the ultimate lie and says, did God really tell you that? And goes on to say this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For he, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You can be like God. You can be the God if you will just partake of the fruit. He's trying to hold you back. It's the ultimate lie. God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He doesn't really understand. You need something else. God knows this. He doesn't want you to be like him. So there's the temptation. What is the original sin? The temptation to transfer the sunum bonum, what's ultimately best, the highest good for me. I'll become the highest good. I'll decide what it is. I'll eat, I'll drink, I'll decide. Whatever I want. Sound familiar? Whatever you want, you should be able to have. And the Bible says, knowing good and evil, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it appealed to her, and it was a delight to the eyes, it appealed to her flesh, and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Sometimes we think Adam's off tilling the soil or something, but he's right there next to her during this process. And so this lie is bought so the temptation did God really say that does he really care does it really matter matter of fact I think if you'll just do this you it'll open all kind of new worlds you see there's a whole new life out there waiting for you to explore forget your relationship forget your marriage forget your children forget honor forget do what you want that's the sunum bonum. That's the highest good for you to get what you want. Doesn't it look good? It tastes good. God's not being straight with you. You can't trust him. And so he transferred and said, yeah, I'll be the God. I'll partake of fruit. And then they eat. And what happens? The Bible says, as we continue, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Their eyes opened. What does that mean? They lost their innocence. They lost their purity. They were no longer pure and innocent. They had now awakened the sin nature. They had now 
put themselves in the place of God, the one thing that he'd commanded them not to do because he knew at that moment when sin would be arise, then death would come. First, it's the death of their innocence, and then it ultimately leads to their physical death. God had not lied. Satan took a sneer, a sarcasm, and arrested the attention. If he came and said, why don't you just disobey God? No, he didn't do that. He started off soft. And then he painted the picture of what it could be like, what you could have. And then it happens, and they recognize after they've done it, they've made a grave mistake. You know, Augustine told the story of when he was a child. He said, um, we had some neighbors who had this big pear orchard, and you know, sometimes they'd give them to us, but I never cared much about them. And one day I was walking by, and I saw a sign on their fence, Warning, do not enter in orchard and do not take pears. He said, I saw that and I thought, nobody was looking. So I walked over there to the tree and I picked a bunch of pears. I put them in my shirt pocket. I walked down about a quarter of a mile and there was some some hogs another neighbor had and I threw it all to them because I don't even like pears. But there was just something in me. And he said, warning, do not. I had to go try it. That's the picture of the sin nature and of every five-year-old boy. <laughs> some, of, some of us aren't five either. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Or excuse me. Then their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. They hadn't recognized they were naked. And then interesting, now they're going to hide. They go into hiding. Hiding from God and hiding from each other. It's just been the two of them. And now they're sewing on fig leaves they're making some clothes and they heard the sound of the lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord god among the trees of the garden this is god almighty who they've had great fellowship with who they've had peace with but now their eyes have awakened and they recognize they've sinned and so because of the holy god they fear And they hear him coming and they're hiding, which is exactly what we do with our lives when we sin. We seek to hide it or to hide it from others. And we continue. And by the way, Adam and Eve is not just a story of the first man and woman. It's a story also of us, of us, of how we respond to God, of how we live of what our temptations are and how we've responded. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? First question God asked, where are you? It's not that God doesn't know where they are. He knows, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. He knows exactly where they are. It's their chance to respond. It's their chance to confess. It's their chance to seek to re-engage. Just like if you have a three-year-old or four-year-old and you tell them, you know, Do not touch this. Maybe it's an heirloom. Do not touch this. This is not a toy. I'm afraid you'll break it. Do not touch this. And then you come in one day and it's broken. And you go to find that grandchild or that child. And you kind of hear and you recognize they're under the bed. You can tell they're hiding in the bed. And you go, Johnny, Susie, where are you? And maybe they'll go, I'm hiding. (laughs) Why are you hiding? He said, well, because 
Um, Because I didn't do it. (laughs) We're afraid and we're naked. I'm just under the bed. I'm just hiding. And so I'm hiding myself. You might be angry. And he said, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Where'd you hear that from? The deceiver. And have you eaten of the tree? Have you touched the heirloom? Have you touched the antique of which I told you not to? Of which I've commanded you not to eat? He continues. And then we see the response here. So we see how we've gone through the cynicism that led to the lie that's led to the questions and now the response. And the man said, the woman you gave me, God, I didn't ask for her. This wasn't my idea. I never said to make someone else. You, you did it, God. We, we laugh, but we like to blame things. on God, I, I, this is not what I signed up for. I mean, God, you're responsible. You've done this. She gave me the fruit from the tree, and so I ate. Because I don't have enough intestinal fortitude to say no, I guess. Huh? Just because she's a little smaller. She's almost as big as me, not really, but I mean. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman does what we call projecting. She projects it onto the serpent, the deceivers. The, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. No acceptance of responsibility, no recognition of wrong, just pointing seeking to deflect and not deal with there's the picture the cynicism the lie the questions then the response there is a garden in england called the alnick poison garden in that garden it is over a hundred of the most lethal plants from all over the world and they grow them there and it's actually a a pretty garden and they have signs everywhere that say do not touch do not get close there's signs everywhere so you're just supposed to kind of look from a distance and you can go through this garden but every year you know what happens some people smell they had they all have six or seven people just from sniffing which they say don't sniff uh will get sick get nauseated some will even seek to touch or pick they may die and it's warnings everywhere Sign, do not touch, do not get any closer, do not smell. Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? And we think, we wouldn't do that. You ought to go to that garden. People do it every day. It's in our nature. Maybe I won't touch it. I won't eat it. I won't touch it. I'm just going to smell. I'm just going to get close, just look. I just want to get a little closer. I just want to look. I just want to see. That looks pretty innocent. It looks like the weeds in my yard. They thought, I don't see it's that big a deal. There's another garden. There's the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was a tree there that Jesus went to in the dark at nighttime. And he knelt and he prayed. He said, Father, if it be that will take this cup from me. Because you see, unlike the Garden of Eden that was bright and sunny, that was full of life and full of blessings and full of gifts, unlike the Garden of Eden that possessed the tree of life, God asked his holy, precious son to go to a tree that was a tree of death that was cursed. 
And not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. So he climbed up upon that tree and had nails driven through his hands and his feet that our sin, our garden sin, our sunum bonum sin, that we transfer what we think is best in place of God and we shove him off the throne and we sit there and we make our own decisions so that we might be forgiven, so that he who knew no sin might become the righteousness of God. And so our sin is placed upon him and his blood was poured so that we might be forgiven on a dark, desperate tree because of mankind's inevitable and insatiable desire to make something else the highest good, for me to have what I want, what I desire. What about you today? If someone asks, what's your sunum bonum? Would it be your work? Would it be money? Would it be success? Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychiatrist when World War II broke out. As a matter of fact, I have his little book right here. It's not a Christian book. Um, but he was placed in a concentration camp. As a matter of fact, he was in a few, along with his mother and father and his sisters and brothers. And, and uh, all but his sister died. But he had been doing some research in Vienna before this happened on suicide and why people got depressed. And what he found out was that people who didn't have the ultimate purpose, uh, people who didn't have what he called the inner life, when times got really hard and the torture started and the death camp was in full swing, they would just kind of give up. They'd become athletic and they'd just kind of quit. And then that's when they would put them in the gas chambers because they could no longer work for the Nazi regime. And he said it was like inevitably I could find, depending on, he didn't use the word sunum bonum, but their, their ultimate focus point, what they thought was most important. And if it was pleasure, if that was what was ultimate for them, they always died. If it was money or, or a title, he said they never made it. Because it wasn't enough to endure the, the horrific things that they were going to have to encounter. But those who had a focal point or a sunum bonum that was significant, that was bigger than they are, that wasn't built upon anything that had to do with them. For many of them, it was God and their relationship with him. Those are the ones who would be able to sustain the torture, the torment, and the darkness. And so he came back and wrote a book and did all kind of research, recognizing what the Scripture already teaches. I want to close with this. There's uh, one of the grim fairy tales is about this wicked witch who portrays herself as a sweet woman who runs an inn. And she has a little servant girl who is mute and cannot write and cannot communicate in any way, but is simply responsible for cleaning up the house and washing the dishes and making everything ready. And so this witch has pronounced a curse upon this bed in her room and all men who will come in and sleep there at dawn, if they're still there, when the sun arises, they are immediately turned to stone. And then she takes those stone statues and she puts them in a garden that she has for herself. And so one day this very young man comes in, not a lot older than the, the little girl, and he comes in, and he's nice, and he's polite, and she is kind of 
uh, attracted to him. Her heart goes out from him because she knows what his fate will be. And after the woman cooks a beautiful meal and says, all right, it's time for you to go to rest, she places him in that bed, that bed that is cursed, that if he is still asleep, when the sun arises, he's turned to stone. And in that same room, on the other side of that room, the little girl has to sleep. And they are locked in that room. And that little girl knows what's going to happen to that young man if the sun rises and he's still there. So she begins to ponder what to do, and she has a little pencil, and she throws it at him. That's what? She sees some little rocks there on the floor and little pebbles, and she throws those at him about an hour later, wakes him up, and he looks at her and gives her a, a face. Later on, he begins to snore, and she finds a piece of broken glass by this windowsill, and she throws it at him, and it leaves a little cut on him, and he goes, what in the world are you doing? And he begins to yell at her and tells her to leave him alone. But she can't talk, and she can't write. She just knows that he's going to die if he's still there in a couple hours. Finally, as he begins to sleep again, she finds all the dirt she can on the floor, and she gets the handful of dirt, and she throws it in his face. He jumps up in rage. What are you doing? And he curses her. He pronounces a curse upon her, and he leaves mad and screaming, cursing, talking about how awful she is and how useless she is. And he walks on in his way, not recognizing that she saved his life. She was trying to give him the most important information he could ever have. Can I tell you today that God is throwing things at you if you don't know Christ? He is seeking to arrest your attention. Maybe you are falling away. Maybe you are being tempted and your sunum bonum has been shifted to work, to money, to some goal, to some material, to something else. And God is saying, I desire for you to rule and I want you to, respond, to be responsible with what I've given you. I want you to represent me and I want you to respect and glorify me. That is the sunum bonum of your life. Don't exchange it for a lie. What is your response today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And as we come before you for a time to reflect and to receive at the table, Lord, I pray that we would confess the sins that beset us, that, Lord, come before you, and Lord, we confess them to remove them from our lives. God, for relationships that, Lord, we seek our pride more than restoration, I pray that you would convict us of that today. Lord, I pray for each one that doesn't know you that today you would draw them that they may know the ultimate sunum bonum of life that you might be glorified. As we receive from the table, may your name be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.